I discovered that people who are very old and have lost their controls, part of it is physical damage to the brain, that they very often go back to um, resolve unfinished issues. My validation means listening and exploring. If someone says, I see my mother, um, you don't say she's there, you don't say she's not there, you, don't, you ask. You realize the person needs to talk about their mother. What do you want to tell your mother? Hello, and welcome to the Age Stage Podcast, where it is our mission to equip you with the resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with the ones you love as they age, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I'm your host, Dr. Cheryl Matthew. I am truly delighted to bring you this episode of Age Stage, connecting heart-to-heart with older adults with Naomi File. Naomi is a pioneer in the aging field. She grew up in a home for the aged in Cleveland, Ohio, where her father was the administrator and her mother the head of social services. This unique background gave her insight into the world of the elderly. They were her neighbors and her friends growing up. From this intimate personal experience, Naomi grew dissatisfied with the traditional methods of working with people with dementia. This drove her to develop the validation theory, an approach that, rather than trying to bring the person with dementia back to our reality, it is more positive to enter their reality. This approach emphasizes empathy and listening to assist people who are in the final stage of life and completing unresolved issues so they can find peace. Validation restores dignity and self-worth for people with dementia and decreases stress and brings joy to caregivers. I'm really happy you're joining us. I think you'll find Naomi's historical perspective on aging illuminating. But even more than that, her validation techniques offer an approach that can lead to less stress and frustration while providing an opportunity for interactions that are more rewarding so the everyday becomes easier. We'll get rolling right after a word from one of our sponsors. Every passage in life has its ups and downs, decisions and transitions, a beginning and an end. I invite you to navigate life's journey like an age sage, fully living, learning, and loving. As we care for our aging loved ones, we also need to make time to care for ourselves. So this is our safe space to share challenges, wisdom, and joy along life's adventure. I'm your guide, Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and this is Age Sage. So it's a real privilege. Thank you for Thank you. Thanks for being here. So I really wanted to meet with you and capture some moments and just your experience. You've been doing this for over 50 years and in elder care and working with dementia. And if we can capture some of that so that we could pass it on to other people and people mm-hmm. new in the field and family caregivers, I think that would just be Good. awesome. Good. So can you tell, tell us what is the validation method? Well, it, it's a way of entering the world of the very old person who's diagnosed with a dementia getting right into so that you become part of their life and you can communicate. And there are very specific techniques of communicating, but basically it's empathy, feeling what that person is feeling, even though you're not going through what they're going through. You feel with them, 
And then the, uh, the validation techniques are very spontaneous once you have the empathy. And it all makes sense. How did you think about this? How did it develop? Well, not through thought at all. <laughs> not a cognitive process. Mm. It was um, really trial and error. In 1963, I graduated from school, came from New York, back to Cleveland. I worked for a while in New York, and then I came back to the home for the aged where I grew up. My father was the director, and uh, my mother was the head of In fact, I think she started the first social work department mm -hmm. ever in 1940. Wow, your mom was a social worker. Yeah, she got oh, a wow. master's degree. Hmm. She came from Germany and went through, got her college, went to John Carroll University in Cleveland, and then she got her master's at Case Western Reserve. Hmm. And then she started the social work department. And when I got there, and on my training was, the site was then called psychiatric group work, hmm. working with small groups. So that's when I came back to the home where my father was the director and he had established a what he called special service department. So he started there in 1940 and I think it was about 42. He found out that those people, and at that time the word dementia had not been coined. The people were called, they have awful names. I think dementia is an awful name too because it means mindless, literally mm. without a mind. But then they were called senile psychotic by the mm. psychiatric community. I think it's unfortunate that the psychiatric community has kind of labeled the people. So these people called senile psychotic, uh, he found, did better in a secure, safe environment with more activities, more nurses, and so that was a special service department in this home. And all the pe in fact, all the people that nobody cared about, that people got mad at, were put in this mm. special service department. Mm. And that's where I went to work. And I started my groups. And at first, my training was mainly in Freud at that time, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Freud was very popular in mm -hmm. social work. So I tried to give the uh, one man was saying that uh, my father, the director, was castrating him in the attic. So I worked with him for a long time trying to give him insight uh, that my father wasn't doing this. I asked my father to come to our group, and I, but it just didn't work. So I learned just through trial and error, and it took about 20 years, I think, of really making mistakes, trying the established social work, group work techniques that worked for other populations, but didn't work for this population. Mm. So finally I learned when I listened and I got to know the family members and I found out with this man, for example, that his father, when he was a little boy, had locked him in the attic and told him he was no good. So when he was old and uh, he's lost his control centers, and he had never expressed his feelings about his father, ever. Now, in his old age, my father was the authority and became a symbol. I learned about symbols that people in present time a substitute for people in the past. And people bring people from the past to the present through symbols. So my father was a symbol of his father, the authority in his life. And when he had a prostate operation, that was like a castration for him. 
And so he said my father had a, a, a knife and was cutting him up in the attic. And he would swear, and, and that's why he was in the special service department, because no one wanted anything to do with him. You know, first I tried him and express his anger and get insight, you know, that my father wasn't doing this, but nothing worked. So I finally learned that when I listened to him, and I learned uh, the technique of mirroring, if I got into his world, oh, SOB, did he hurt you that much? His anger subsided. So gradually... Through trial and error, the validation techniques develop. As far as I know, you were one of the first people to, to develop this and to really realize, don't argue with people and to listen. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Right. You were really on the forefront. Now, people talk about it today, right. but I, I think it's, you really started Well, that. at that time, and this was started in the 60s, mm-hmm. there weren't very many old people around diagnosed with the dementia. As I said, they said senile psychotic mm-hmm. and very few. So the first technique was not really listening that the Alzheimer's Association established. It was called reality orientation. It started in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, so that it was very vehemently adhered to by the Alzheimer's Association and anyone in this field that if someone said, um, I have to go home, or there's my mother, that they, uh, I think the way justified it, they have a right to know where they are. It was very, people were very strong about it at that time. It was like environment and heredity. Remember, they had this big argument. It, right. it was very, it was, people were really furious in my work, because my work was kind of the opposite. If someone said, uh, there's my mother, uh, I don't argue with them and say your mother's dead, which is what the people from Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Folsom, his name was Robert Folsom. And he published stuff on reality orientation, and the government did too. So um, they believed it was very important that you tell people over and over again where they are and what the date is and what the day is. Because um, they, uh, it started actually in a VA hospital where the men in their 50s were shell-shot during the war. And they did find that repeating over and over, you are Hank Jones, you are now living in uh, this uh, VA hospital, and, and, and it helped the men and rehabilitated them. Mm. But they applied those same techniques for 50-year-olds to 80-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different population. Mm-hmm. But this is still the case. They use the same techniques for a 50-year-old person who has a real dementia, mm-hmm. who is an Alzheimer, discovered this with a 51-year-old lady. And they are quite different, I have found, than a 90-year-old person that has gradual memory loss because of damage. You know, like I always say, it's the same as wrinkles. As you get old, you have wrinkles. If you're 40, you shouldn't have so many. Mm-hmm. But when you're 90, it's appropriate. Mm-hmm. So uh, that this is an appropriate. I discovered that people who are very old and have lost their controls, and part of it is physical damage to the brain, that they very often go back to um, resolve unfinished issues. Like people have never uh, expressed their sexual feelings throughout their life. When in my group, they start undressing and acting out sexually. 
And this really uh, turns off the staff. You know, in, in other words, for years and years, no one bothered me at all because no one would ever want to come up there. <laughs> right. I said, let her do right. her thing. Right. In fact, the director, when my father left, there was a new director, and he would tell the staff about me. She's as crazy as the people she works with. And they would interrupt me in the middle of the group. I mean, it was very difficult after my father left. When my father was still there as a director, they left me alone. But that's how validation developed in the beginning, from 1963 to 1980. In 1980, my father left that institution. And that's how I got around. That's how validation developed. It was very... Indigenous, it was organic, it wasn't something that I thought through that, oh, it was very gradual, with trial and error, and also I taught at the same time at a local college, and so I had to, someone said, you've got to write down what you do, and I called it group work with disoriented old people, and uh, someone said, that is not a good name, <laughs> and uh, we had made a film in 1978, and uh, called Looking for Yesterday, and a researcher from a big research, um, Benjamin Rose Institute in Cleveland, saw the film, and we called it, fan I called it fantasy therapy, like you're entering into the fantasy of the old person. And he said to me, that is a terrible name. Fant no one is ever going to want to research fantasy therapy. He said, what you're doing is you're validating the people. So I said, okay, his name was Ben Danis, and so I said, we'll call it Validation. And that's how the name Validation came about in 78. Well, I really see how it's, it is uh, organic, it, it it just, is. and it just grew, and it seemed right. like it grew from people really wanting it, people asking you to come and yeah. share and mm -hmm. reaching out for something, yeah. for answers. Yeah, and finally, um, the uh, Alzheimer's Association, which was the accepted way of dealing, because I was very little, you know, no one had knew about validation, um, but they were very big, and they finally realized, and I think it was through our films, there's one scene in Looking for Yesterday that my husband made where one of the ladies, I restrain her, and there's a little scene where I'm using reality orientation, and she says, don't do that, and I think it was after that film, the ombudsman at that time, ombudsman started. Mm -hmm. They saw the film, and very gradually they stopped with reality orientation. However, you know, my validation means listening and exploring. If someone says, I see my mother, um, you don't say she's there, you don't say she's not there, you, don't, you ask. You realize the person needs to talk about their mother. What do you want to tell your mother? So that was misconstrued into lying to the person. And in validation, you don't lie. Right. Tell us about that, because some people believe in the therapeutic lie Yeah. Using with people with dementia. You talk about that it's, it could get them to quiet down it does. for the moment. It does. But it doesn't help in the long term. Tell us your experience with it. Well, lie. I have never lied to people. I don't mm -hmm. think any lie can be therapeutic. I think the lady who started that, in fact, someone told me who he thought she was, started work for the government. And I think mean, she's the one. She came to my workshops, and she thought people without a lot of training misunderstand 
or may, maybe they've had training in behavior modification, you know, positive and negative reinforcement. So if someone says, I see my mother, and you tell them again and again and again, she's dead, she's dead, and, and don't give them any positive reinforcement at the time, just negative, that maybe they'll change. But that doesn't work. with It works with people who want to maybe lose weight, but it does not work with very old people who really see their mother with their mind's eye and need to talk to their mother, at the other hand, who know that their mother is dead because they were there when she died. People don't forget that. And the idea, very basic, a, psyche, a psychological principle is that we have many levels of knowing. I mean, Freud talked about the subconscious, and that's very much accepted by the psychiatric community. But for some reason, I think that the psychiatric community does not believe that old people are people. They see them as different. And I think that's the shame of it. I agree. And I see that not only in the psychiatric community, but just in society. And it's starting to change since our you know, baby boomers are getting older. There's more people older, so they think, well, it's not me. I'm not old. They've always thought right. people older than them. Well, I think the baby boomers, you know, everyone says the baby boomers, but they don't ever think they're going to become disoriented. Right. So right. what they it's do is they run and use vitamins and eat right and do all those things. But I don't think that they're really involved in uh, trying to communicate with people who are diagnosed with a dementia. And that's why I don't see this as changing. I feel sorry about that. Mm -hmm. um, however, people are listening now, and they never did before. But listening, actually, what they're doing is redirecting them, which is not listening, and lying to them, which is, I mean, all these techniques tend to shut people up, to quiet them. And I think that's the goal, because there are very few staff, and there's a lot of old people. So um, you want to quiet them and so you can leave. I remember talking to you about this, and I said so many times that in communities, they say we need more staff. And what, what you were saying, well, I, I thought that was a great idea, is when you train the staff, you don't have to wait till the behavior is out of control mm. or when you do validation throughout the day, mm -hmm. if you're feeding them, you take the time and, you know, you suck by different touches. Yeah. And so you do it throughout the, the staff can do it throughout the day. So behaviors don't have to build. Yeah. If people can't talk, you don't want to, they don't want to be touched. Not everyone wants to be touched. Right. So if you um, had a meeting with your staff, even if you have three or four for 30 people and you say with Mrs. Jones, when she says she has to go home, you ask her, where is your home and, and what does it look like? And everybody does that with her. Mm -hmm. She's not going to want to go home so much. Mm -hmm. So if they all learn to use these same techniques, uh, which are not hard to learn, uh, I think things would change. So it's getting the, getting the team on the same page. Right. So some common themes, you mentioned home. I want to go home. That's a common mm -hmm. theme. And also people being paranoid that someone's stealing from them. See, I don't call another. that paranoia. That's a label yeah. that they use Thank for this, you. like, hallucinating and paranoid and delusion. 
You know, these are terms that are very fine that Freud started, as you know, with young people who were seeing things and shouldn't, you know, and that was not good for them to see, um, you know, if I'm 30 years old and I, I see little pink panthers, something's wrong with me. But if I'm 90 years old and I see my parents because I need to talk with them, even though at the same time I know that they're dead, but I, I need to talk with them. And my control centers are loosened, so I don't really know where I am. And also I don't see very well, and I don't hear very well. It is very easy. It's so different from a 30-year-old who is hallucinating. It's a totally different situation. So it's like if a teenager slams a door, you say he's manic-depressive. Sometimes he's... It's a teenager. His glands are changing. You know, you look at his physical, you know, what's his hormones. Now, if he were a 30-year-old man and did that, then there'd be something wrong. So uh, somehow we do not accept the fact that uh, very old people have physical changes that affect their behavior, like seeing and hearing and memory. Uh, people lose brain cells from their 30s on. So when you get to be 90... Some people have lost a lot of brain cells. Some people haven't, because we all age differently. But just because people have doesn't mean they have a disease. I mean, this is um, what I have discovered through working. Right. Because I've often thought, I've wondered how much people's unresolved issues affect their dementia. So, you know, I've heard about, you know, you could have an autopsy of two people with similar brains that looks like Alzheimer's brain, yeah. One person, when they were alive, had symptoms of Alzheimer's, right. and one person didn't. And so why is that? It sounds like what you found out is that if when people have resolved those different stage... More or less, yeah. As best we can, yeah, right? Right. then they have a better chance of not expressing the dementia or the Alzheimer's. And it sounds like you have seen people that have not completed those stages or that have repressed their feelings... Right have the more of the dementia and withdrawal into themselves? Well, I worked with people. I used to have like uh, film groups or the Tuesday groups. or I worked with a lot of well people, old people in the home who were in their 70s and 80s. And I worked for some time at a senior housing. And I had groups of people who were fine, the in, independent living people. And um, these are people who had resolved, I found, had resolved their unfinished issues. A lot of them were immigrants in the senior housing from Russia and so on. But they uh, talked freely and they did not have, even though some, one lady was over 100. And, uh, but she didn't, um, there were no signs of so-called dementia. Like, mm-hmm even though she didn't always know where she was and she didn't always remember, but you wouldn't uh, diagnose her with a dementia. So I think I've had enough comparison with people who were so-called well-aged, with people who are the same age, but who are expressing uh, the sexual feelings or anger or grief uh, or have to go back and see their, their parents or, you know, significant people in their lives. People have died and they never grieved. Mostly people controlled their feelings, didn't even know they had them. And that's what I found Mm -hmm. happens. 
So it is really a combination of physical damage to the brain and the way you've lived your life. And you really can't separate them. And if you looked at the whole person when you make a diagnosis, I think it'd be a lot better. Rather than saying they have Alzheimer's or Park or this, you know, just a physical. Yes, that's important. But it's only part of the explanation. What would you suggest to usually, you know, I, I usually see people around age 85. That's when I get a call as a care manager. The adult children call me and they're somewhere around 85 and they're worried about mom or dad. Is there something that you would recommend to the caregiver of how to listen to them at that point? And maybe there's just mild cognitive impairment. You know, maybe they see some signs of a little bit of memory loss, little signs of dementia. Mm. So before they would go into that second stage Mm. that you talk about, are there things that a caregiver can do to help their loved one at that point? When a person repeats a lot, it drives you nuts. Right, right. Because my husband's diagnosed with dementia, so I'm very aware. And he repeats all the time. (laughs) And um, it's sad because, and I'm able to use, you know, what I've learned with him. And when he repeats, I just tell him again. And sometimes I ask him, well, do you really miss Cleveland? Because we live in Oregon. And he's back in Cleveland, and he keeps asking, where are we, where are we? And I say, well, where do you want to be? And he said, no, I want to know where we are. So the validation techniques of going back to the feelings don't always work with him. He wants to know where he is, but you tell him, and he asks you again at the same time. In the beginning, when he did this a lot, uh, I got myself a punching bag, (laughs) and I just went and started punching after a while. But now um, I am able to listen. You know, when he says, where are we? I tell him. And then finally he says, okay, let's just do the." He changes the subject. But we have caregivers, and they have been to my workshops, not full day, but short ones. And it hasn't affected them at all. And that's what's sad. I'm so they're not, sad. they're not quite getting it. They, they do it their own way. Right. And they get exasperated. Now, when I'm not there, I'm sure they get very exasperated. (laughs) When I'm there, you know, they try to to temper it. But um, it's sad because um, here uh, I have given them the book, my book. I've showed them our videos, and they've been interested. So I would say that the advice I would give to the caregivers is not to argue ever. And not to say, I just told you that two minutes ago. Not to say that. But um, to try saying, well, what do you miss most about Cleveland or California? What was the nicest thing? Mm -hmm. Which is um, polarity of validation technique. And if that doesn't work, just to tell the person. And then after a while, they they, they themselves say, oh, okay. And... uh, do something else, which is not diversion, but it's just answering the question until the person doesn't ask you anymore. I mean, this is from my practical experience with my head. Right, so are the validation techniques that you've been, because it's, it's always different 
when it's your when husband. it's your own that's right spouse exactly. or grandparent or that's it's always true. different than when you're professional field that's true so are the techniques that you have been using all this time are you seeing that they're they're helping well this? with my husband sometimes okay. certainly the idea of not arguing the idea of, of accepting the fact that there's a cognitive loss and not trying to change him that's basic Accepting the per- and that's nothing new. I mean, that's social work one hundred and one. Right. So yeah. what I don't understand is why this whole idea of of telling people what is right and wrong, good and bad, when it is against any helping principle. I don't understand. I think, and you use the word accept a lot with in your workshop people accepting the changes and things. It seems like part of what caregivers tell me and what I hear is that it's so hard for them to accept that their loved one has dementia. They didn't plan on that. That was not in their vision of what their future was going to be like. So here they here they are, and it makes them sad. They're worn out. They're stressed out. It takes a long time to accept I think what is sad is, as I said, that the medical community, and I think this all goes back to the medical community, does not accept, I can't think of a better word, or realize or acknowledge that when you get old, and I think it's the word dementia that's really bad, which is from the Latin dis and men's mind without a mind, that when people get very old, that some people normally lose brain cells, normally, a lot. And that means that they don't always, they lose the proprioceptive cells, so they don't always know where they are. And a person can say, like in this example, this doctor, who said he's in his office practicing medicine, so I can do what I want to do. That This is partly physical, and it's part of aging. So if, when all these people got older in the 60s and 70s, the medical community had said, hey, this is very normal, it's, it's aging, the caregivers would not be so strung out or, or when they would think, well, that happens when you're old. Like you, get, you catch cold when you're in the outside. It would be a normal part of life. Like teenagers, it's normal to do that. If a little, if a two-year-old picks up a phone and talks to someone that isn't there, you don't freak out and say, hey, she's hallucinating. She's got to go to a, a psychologist or something. No, you say she's two years old. She's she can't classify she's yet. <laughs> her developmental, her, her mind is not yet able to differentiate between people that are here and people that are inside. That's part of developing her imagination. So I think it's the same idea. It's very sad that the medical community has taken this over and seen it from the 60s and the 70s from purely a medical point of view. The fact that I grew up with the people, you know, I lived in the home, I think made it different for me because these people, as I said, were my friends. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew them. I knew them like I better than I, I didn't have many friends as a little kid. So the people in the home were really my friends. I would go to their room after school and we would talk. Um, 
So I think that's where I came from. I think if the doctors would come ahead, it's too late now. In the 60s and 70s, had really tried to get to know the people, they wouldn't have diagnosed them as demented, which comes from an old, insane asylum, French, a squirrel made up the name dementia, which means crazy, and people are not. But from a medical point of view, where cognition and the day and the date and where you are is super important, and if you don't know, there's something wrong with you. It's a very judgmental way, of, which is it not based on psychological principles. I don't know. At least the way I learn. What would you tell a loved one that has a, a spouse that has dementia? How can they have more peace in their heart about it? To see it as normal and not as weird. There's nothing wrong with, with my husband or it just... It's his aging process. It seems like sometimes they get very tired, not only the repetitive behavior, but cleaning, personal care, making sure they don't get out and get lost. They worry about them. It's true. And I I clean my husband. I I, um, wipe his rear end, and I put him on the toilet, and... It's just what I do. Right. So it's not wrong. It's just no, what it is. It's just, it's just normal. It isn't that old people are children. They're not. But a mother who has to toilet and clean a, a child, she doesn't say, oh, my God, this is terrible. No. I mean, that's, uh, that's part of it. Yeah, it's the same thing. If, if you can only, it's not that, as I said, the old person is not a child. However, you do lose your controls. And you have to help, you need help going to the toilet. It's part of life. Sometimes uh, spouses, when they get so tired and they really can't kind of handle their loved one at home anymore, it's just, you know, they're, they're sure. not taking yeah. care of themselves. And then they feel guilty about putting them in a memory care. Uh, but, you know, having worked in a memory care now and also have clients to go in memory care, and sometimes they get in there and they thrive much more than they're at home because of socialization and the caregivers are fresh and the loved one can go home and, you know, rejuvenate. So that's a hard one on loved ones. Yeah, and I think each case is different. And I'm I'm lucky we have caregivers, for example. We have long-term care insurance. So I don't, yeah, I don't have to. (laughs) be there all the time. I can take off when I want. So if I couldn't, it would be much harder. There's this big fear about nursing homes, as well as people are afraid to get Alzheimer's or dementia. It's almost like above cancer now. People fear that more. I think this fear, and it it came quickly. In the 70s, somehow it spread. I mean, the, the media, the it was amazing. I think that's really sad. But it's there. You know, you, it's too late to change it. So what, what the family members can do, other than acknowledge this is part of normal aging for my dad, is uh, this is my father, and this is his life, and I have my life. And... Um, to kind of separate them 
and also to be able to um, to verbalize the anger to somebody. Well, I guess that's what the support groups are for, partially. And any unresolved issues that the that the that the child, when I say child, I mean the 30, 40, 50 year old, has with the parent, if they could resolve them, then they wouldn't feel so guilty. Because when I think of validation method, I think everybody needs it. Yeah. Not just people that are disoriented or right. maloriented. So caregivers now are seeing their parents with dementia and they're thinking, I don't want to get that. So what do you recommend for the 30, 40, 50-year-old to do as far as a validation method for themselves? Well, to be very aware of their own hang-ups, you know, anger, sexual feelings. Uh, if somebody dies, if, if my husband dies, you know, I'm 40 or 50, did I grieve enough? Do I need to uh, cry more? Do I need to get angry? To be very honest with yourself and be able to tell someone, to find someone, a, a social worker, a psychologist, somebody, to get out your own feelings and be able to say, I'm so mad at my dad. He's a terrible man. You know, be able to say that and, and feel it. And, and I think this would help. I hear the term, the long goodbye, for the spouse. It's this eight to ten year goodbye and they're sad most of the time and to look at their spouse just kind of drifting more and more away and it seems like part of it is that they identify their loved one with the memories so um, I think if the caregiver could see all the wonderful things that are in the person that maybe they never had before they would have fun with them and also music is, is great, and movement, if people can move and dance together. There's a lot of good stuff in people. Basic, inherent stuff that I think we're maybe all born with, that will come out when we get very old. And I think the more the cognition goes, the more the intuition comes out. And that's where the caregiver should go. What does intuition in a person like that look like? Well, when people recognize when people really care and people don't. I mean, some people are very phony. Mm -hmm. Some caregivers will say, oh, oh sweetie, you know, take this. And, and they'll be like, ah. Yeah, and they know yeah. exactly. I don't know, it's just a way of putting things together. And as I say, people rhyme. And uh, they never did before. They became poetic. And, you know, people that use, uh, they're very, very disoriented. And um, they will use parts of their body as people, as like children. Spanky people that, that want to be mothers, spank their children. That people use their, their imagination. And if the caregiver could see, hey, my mom is really, she's mad at someone. And did they do all that? What, is, what did they do? And then there's a communication. So if you can see that the people have vivid, I call them fantasies or, or, or inner realities, and then just be part of it, it could be fun. Wouldn't that be neat if people could have fun? And I think you said that yeah. at the end of your talk 
I guess, yes, oh did. yeah, that it's fun for the caregiver. Yeah. yeah, and that you want the caregivers to have joy. That's right. Also. That's a big goal. And there is a joy when you enter into the world of another person. And you feel what they're feeling. It makes you feel good. And not that every moment can feel good. And as I say, I used a punching bag a lot. Uh, and that helps. You know, I've worked with older people for probably 20 years. And as I'm talking to them and say we're having a discussion about they're not going to be able to drive anymore mm. or they need to move into a community or something. Right. You know, I'll talk with their adult children and I'll think, well, when I, what will I do when I get that age? So as you're getting older, how are you accepting the changes that are going on? Well, I don't drive anymore. And I drove when I was 12 years old. Oh. I used to drive the people in the home to the hospital. That was my job in the summer. But um, I know that my, my vision, my peripheral vision is not good. And when I came to Oregon, I know I drove all the time, so I wanted to drive, and my son was with me. And I didn't see the, you know, there's a strip in the road. Oregon has a little different okay. than Eugene, and I made a wrong turn. And then I, from that point on, I know I should not drive. I know that if I drove, I would most likely have an accident. And I'd hurt myself, I'd hurt the person I was with, and I'd hurt, so I, I don't drive anymore. Was that difficult? Or what, how did that feel? Well, it is difficult drive? because I'm so dependent. You know, I, I'm a, I, my whole life I've been independent. When I lived in Cleveland with my husband, I was independent. We each had a car. And I traveled alone, you know, I did everything alone. But So now I'm very dependent on the caregivers. Because they drive, and I don't. It's a hard struggle. It isn't just the driving, but it's just being dependent on somebody else. Like, we can't go to the movies. We love to go to the movies. But at night, I, I know I, I can't drive. If we don't have a caregiver, we can't go. And if the caregiver doesn't want to go, we don't go. So, just accepting. I have no choice. You have to accept the fact. I cannot drive. Is there any parting thought that you'd like to leave us with? There is a joy, I think, in living. People that I've met in the home, even the people who are diagnosed with a dementia, have that in them. Those people that I work with, you know, in groups, you know, they have, we have fun, you know, we sing, we move, we talk about very deep things. I once said I invited the psychiatrist. I thought he would really see how the wisdom of these people, because they come up with wonderful things. So we met outside, and I was wanted to show off, and everyone was following an ant. <laughs> Nobody talked. Oh they were you hadn't been outside before, so they following this ant. Oh. But anyway, um, no, it's just been fun. I've enjoyed my work, and I'm grateful I was able to do it. It sounds like it's about your perception. It's about people's perception. And to remember the joy, mm -hmm. and to listen. Don't argue. Listen. Validate. And have fun. All right. Yeah. Enjoy the stuff that's there. Because there's a lot there if you see it. There's a lot of good stuff there. A lot of good stuff there. <laughs>
in, in every human being. If you'd like more information on the validation theory, you can go to the website at vfvalidation.org. That's V like Victor, F like Frank, validation.org. Thank you for joining us. At AgeSage, our aim is to equip you with resources to navigate life's challenges, empower you to make critical choices with your aging loved ones, and enrich your life with a renewed sense of self-worth, self-confidence, and peace of mind. I want to take a moment to ask you to rate, review, and recommend this podcast. Age Sage is a new podcast that we created just for you, but no one will know about it if our listeners don't spread the word. So please take a moment now to review it and share it with friends whom you know would benefit from it. If you have a burning question that you would like me to answer on the show, please head over to agesage.co and leave me a voicemail. There you will also find detailed show notes for each episode, and you can download my free ebook, Advocating for Aging Loved Ones. Once again, that's agesage.co, A-G-E-S-A-G-E dot C-O. This is Dr. Cheryl Matthew, and I want to thank you again for joining us today. I look forward to sharing this journey with you.